But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Just a second. Uh, Father God, we come to the close of a year and the advent of a new year, and we tend to be uh, filled with regrets, what we have not done or have not accomplished, and we tend to be filled with hope and optimism about what the new year might bring. Maybe even some of us are In a rare breed, we're the opposite. God, maybe some of us, we are patting ourselves on the back about what we've done this past year, or we look forward to the new year with dread. But we thank you, God, because you are a God who holds the past and holds the future, and you hold this very moment, and we know that we can trust you. Thank you, God, that you are trustworthy and that you have shown yourself trustworthy in your faithfulness to us and providing us a place to worship and providing us with brothers and sisters in Christ. Providing us material goods beyond those that most who've ever lived on this earth could ever dream of. You surely are good to us. And even as we know that this world is dying and fading away, we long, God, for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for it. We ask for it. Come, Lord Jesus. And give us, Father, the patience and the steadfastness and the faithfulness to endure and be preserved in faithfulness as we wait his coming. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Left my sermon notes on the the printer tray. So we are uh, we are in a series uh, this this sort of Advent season. We're not we're past Advent, but it's still kind of Christmassy. People haven't taken down their decorations yet, and so we're we're still in the same series. Um, they're talking about why Jesus came. 
why, why Jesus came. And we've looked at several reasons why Jesus came, from uh, the need to fulfill the law to the fact that Jesus came to serve, that Jesus came, in fact, to die, and some other facets of his coming. This morning, we are looking at the fact that Jesus came to rise. Jesus came at Christmas, inevitably, ultimately, to rise on Easter Sunday. It's not what we normally think about at Christmas. We think of Christmas and Easter as separate holidays, as, as different events, as completely uh, segregated on our mental calendars. Um, except for the fact that, you know, one costs us a whole lot less. Um, but other than that, we, uh, we, we kind of have a, a separation of these things. But there's a real sense in which the whole life of, of Jesus Christ, whether we're talking about his service, the miracles he did, the teaching he did, the, his fulfillment of the law, his death, his resurrection, is almost together like a single blip on the, on the timeline of history. One singular event, in a way, because you, you cannot separate one from the other. You either take the whole Jesus, or you really get none of Jesus. Either the Jesus who came to serve is the Jesus who died, and, and the Jesus who fulfilled the law, and yes, the Jesus who rose, or he's not the Jesus who served at all, not the way he came and said he was going to serve. If, if you say he died, but he didn't come to serve, well, then he didn't die the way he said he was dying. If, if he fulfilled the law, but he didn't serve, well, then he didn't fulfill the law the way you said he did. And, and if he died and he did not rise, then he did not die in any meaningful sense. And so we look to his resurrection this morning. And we're going to see, uh, by looking at Luke 24, 1 through 12, that Jesus' resurrection was, in fact, surprising. It was very surprising. And it was surprising for one of three reasons. His, his resurrection was surprising because his followers didn't hear, they didn't believe, and they didn't understand. His followers didn't hear, they didn't believe, and they didn't understand. So I'm just going to jump right in this morning, but let's set the stage as we do. The first four verses or so help us to set the stage of what's going on here. And in the very beginning, we see in these four verses, the women are going to the tomb of Jesus to perfume, so to speak, his body. Um, put this in the background. These kind of give us the, the background information we need for these three points I'm going to make. Um, a, a biblical scholar by the name of Andreas Kostenberger makes a fairly convincing case for dating these events in AD 33. And if he's right, if this is taking place in AD 33, then the date in our passage is April 5th or 17 Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. And in any event, it is certainly, as Luke tells us, the first day of the week. The Jews uh, 
recognize days from sundown to sundown rather than from midnight to midnight. But since it's early dawn, according to Luke, we know that the day has changed by our reckoning from Saturday to Sunday. And so here we have on Sunday, April 5th, AD 33, most likely, we have a number of women coming to Jesus' tomb. And in the previous episode in Luke's Gospel, uh, at the end of chapter 23, Luke had recounted how when Jesus was entombed, a number of women who were his disciples since his days ministering in Galilee, that is, from some of the earlier days of his ministry, took note of where they put the body and the preparations that were being made for Jesus, because it was Friday afternoon, again, probably April 3rd, when Jesus was executed. And based on the biblical accounts, the time of his demise was probably somewhere between 3 and 4 p.m. And I'm not sure when sunset would have occurred in A.D. 33, but uh, the sunset in Jerusalem over the past 400 years has usually hovered around 6.30 p.m. So you can imagine there, there was very little time to take care of this body before sunset. And at sunset, of course, was the Sabbath. It was a day of rest when no work could be done. In fact, Luke records that by the time the body was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the Sabbath was already drawing near. The women had time to make their perfumes, but applying them to the body and dressing the body itself would have to wait until the Sabbath was over. Now, the women were not intending to embalm the body the way we think of an embalming. Uh, a modern-day embalming is about preserving the body so that it does not decay, which, when you think about it, is a strange practice, right? We're throwing a body in the ground, and then we load it full of chemicals so that it doesn't decay. But, but the Egyptians did something similar. Their, their process was a little bit different, but they... They liked these mummies to hang around, and we like to go to museums and, and ogle them. Uh, but the, the Israelites didn't preserve the bodies that way. Uh, in, in their culture, the body was returning to dust. It was returning to dirt, as, as we oftentimes say in our funeral processions. And so their idea of chemically treating the body was very practical. They didn't want the decaying corpse to smell too bad. And so that's a very practical reason to dress the body for burial. And they apparently, these women, didn't want any more time to go by because they made their way to the tomb at the earliest daylight. If Jesus died at, say, 3 p.m. on Friday, and it was, let's say, 6 a.m. on Sunday when the women set out, that's 39 hours. And because I was interested, I looked up, how long does it take a body to smell? And the short answer is, well, it depends on the weather conditions. Uh, it could take a few hours or it could take a few days. So clearly, time is of the essence, right? They, they have probably very little time left before this gets bad. But when the women arrive, Luke says in verse 2, the women find two things out of place. The first is that the stone had been rolled away. Now, a first century Jewish, ca uh, Jewish tomb was like a small cave. A, a small entrance gave way to a bigger chamber where one or more bodies could be laid. 
and a large cut rock was typically placed in front of this hole, and the rock would block the entrance for obvious reasons, but it could be rolled away when necessary. And it would have been large, and it would have been difficult to do so, but in fact, another writer details the fact that the women were unsure once they got to the tomb how they would get to the body given the size of this rock. But more unusual in the case of Jesus is that the tomb had been sealed. Matthew, another writer of Jesus' life, makes clear that given there were concerns that Jesus' disciples might steal the body, the Jewish authorities worked with the Roman authorities to both have the tomb sealed shut and to have guards posted. And so as the women arrive and see that the stone was rolled away and the tomb opened was extraordinary and very out of place. But then things kind of escalate because they look into the tomb and there is no body to be seen. How would a body be gone? The Romans certainly had very little interest in getting any more involved in this quarrel over the so-called king of the Jews. They were probably already more involved than they were comfortable being. And a Jew would not be very interested in defiling himself by touching a dead body, let alone violating the Sabbath to do so. Moreover, how do you get past Roman soldiers trained to kill? And so at the end of verse 4, it's kind of understandable that Luke has the women perplexed. They're confused. And without any other context, shouldn't they have been? They were at a loss, and it's hard to blame them. But the truth is, is that the confusion of Jesus' followers, though appreciable, was not justifiable for three reasons that we're going to get into now. And the first one is that Jesus' followers didn't hear. We'll look at verses 5 through 9. Verses 5 through 9 say, um, And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. We can start back in, in the second part of 4. Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. Suddenly, the, the word is actually one of my favorite Bible words, behold. Which I think anytime you see the word behold, I've said this before, but I like to say it. Try so, because it sounds weird, it sounds awkward, right? Like You're like, who says behold? Just try this mentally in your head, say, check this. Anytime you see the word behold, say, check this. And it makes so much more sense. So, uh, and, and just pretend like Luke is telling you this story, right? While they were perplexed about this, check this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. See, it works in almost every case in the Bible. But it is the general idea. It's like, pay attention. Hear this, what I'm about to say to you. That's, that's kind of the sense of the word behold. And I think check this is a close modern equivalent. And so check this, there's two men. And, and they weren't there before this, it seems. They just appeared, and their, and their clothing is gleaming, incredibly bright. In fact, um, 
the, the word that Luke uses is like the, the verbal form of what like lightning looks like. In fact, the two other times it's used in the Bible, it's a pretty rare word, but it's used to describe the bright, intense light that lightning produces. So anything that you would describe with that type of lightning effect is not normal, right? So these are not normal men. By all evidence, they are angels. They are divine messengers in the form of human beings. And their sudden, impressive appearance reasonably, reasonably causes the women to be terrified, right? And Luke says they bowed their faces to the ground. It's not a, it's not a bowing of worship, but probably a bowing of respect. Um, not something we do in American culture, but in other cultures that was common. But since, the, since an angel is a messenger, these angels have a message that they want to get on with, with these women. And so they begin by asking a question. They say, why do you seek the living, singular, by the way, why do you seek the living among the dead, plural? Which is a great question. Seems a little bit cheeky, seems a little bit kind of... Uh, Arrogant, you know, um, like when your your toddler, or if you're around a toddler, knows something that you don't know, and you know they're like, "How come you don't know this?" Um, but the underlying assumption of their question is that the women are doing something foolish. Of course, you wouldn't look for a living person among dead people. So they spell it out. They say, "He's not here. He has risen." That is, the one they saw die, the one they saw hung on a Roman cross, is no longer dead, that he should be among the tombs. What was happening here? Well, the angel said, remember what Jesus told to you? All the way back, from his earliest days in Galilee. Remember back then, he said, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. It's almost the exact words we looked at last week in Luke 9, 22. Mark records similar words in, in Mark 8, verse 31, and, and chapter 9, verse 31. And he told some followers about his resurrection in Mark chapter 9, verse 9 as well. Similarly, Matthew records Jesus speaking of his resurrection in, in chapter 12, verse 40, and in chapter 17, verse 9. So this is something that Jesus brought up on more than one occasion. So what's the problem here? We, we might be tempted because the angels do say, remember this, and then it says, they remembered this, to think that they forgot he had said this. But forgetting something isn't the only reason that you'd need to remember. Forgetting isn't the only opposite of remember, depending on the, the context. And that's especially true in biblical narrative. Sometimes remembering is just about bringing something to mind, focusing on it, and letting it sink in and, 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 and pondering it. Often the Hebrew notion of remembering is to bring something to mind in a way that you can act on it. So even God can be spoken of, especially in the Old Testament, of remembering things. It's not that he forgot things. It's that he brings them to his own mind in such a way that he's going to now act on them. So, for instance, the Bible says that God remembered Noah after he'd spent some time in the ark. It's not like God 
forgot that he had eight people out there on a ship somewhere, and suddenly he goes, yeah, I need to do something about them. No, it means that God reached a point where it was time for him to deal with it, and so he brought it to mind and acted upon it. There was nothing that God had forgotten. And so I don't think the problem here is that the women forgot what Jesus said. This is kind of a hard, especially something that Jesus said repeatedly, over and over again. This is the kind of a hard one to forget. You don't forget that time that somebody told you they were going to rise from the dead. Especially if they keep bringing it up. The problem, I take it then, is that they didn't hear Jesus. They didn't really listen to him. They didn't take it in and accept what he was saying. They knew the words, but for any number of reasons, they didn't attach any deep significance to them. Perhaps it was just too wonderful an idea that they thought he was speaking figuratively. Perhaps they were so rooted in this uh, Jewish idea of a Messiah who would conquer Israel's foes that the words just, it created cognitive dissonance for them. You know what cognitive dissonance is? It's like when you've got two ideas that you be- want to believe and they're contradictory to each other and, and you can't hold on to them. And so sometimes if you believe this idea right here so strongly, even though you, you, you're hearing something over here with your ears and, and, and this new idea that's so opposed to this, it just can't get into your brain. And it's not like you would say that's false. It's just your brain just can't handle it because it's a paradigm shift. Maybe that's what's going on for them. And we could guess all day long what reasons may have led these women to neglecting Jesus' own words to them. But at the end of the day, they couldn't quite accept the significance of these words the way Jesus meant them when he said them. Maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe you, say, grew up, or even as an adult, hearing the good news about Jesus Christ, but not really hearing it. You heard it on some level. You heard the words, and it's not necessarily that you even forgot all the things that you heard, but you never let them sink in. You never let them affect your expectations. You never let them affect your hopes and your dreams and your planning, let alone your worldview. You, you kind of held them off to the side and never really incorporated them into who you are. You weren't changed by them. You weren't affected by them. And you kind of left them over here. Whatever got them to the point, I think that's where these women are. They heard on one level, but they didn't hear. Sometimes we say, well, you, you heard, but you didn't listen, or you listened, but you didn't hear. You know, but we have a sense in which we, we know that that's true, that we, we get a message, and we know the message. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll tell my kids something. I'll ask them to do something. Um, or I'll tell them some important piece of information. And then they don't act on it. They don't respond as if they have internalized that information and it's become part of their 
person or, or part of their uh, purpose in that moment. And when I question them about it later, they can tell me, like, do you remember what I told you? And they'll, they'll tell it back to me. Well, then the question is, well, if you knew that, then why didn't you do this? And they look at me like, are you crazy? Like, what, what, I, don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to answer you, Dad. Like, that's the look you guys give me. And maybe that's not what's going on in your head. But it's like, I don't even know how to answer you. Because, yes, I heard this. And yes, what you're saying makes perfect sense that I should have done this in light of this. But I did nothing, you know. And I think we're all like that. We're, especially as children, I think as part of our, our development. But we are that way as adults too. And, and, and that's what's going on. So maybe, maybe in your past, you heard something about this Jesus. You, you heard some of the great things about his good news. You heard things that, that, that yes, he, he lived and, and he was God. And he, was, he took on flesh and, and he lived like us. But, but he was without sin. And, and he died for us. And, and he paid a penalty for us. And, and he rose again to new life. And, and, and you know all those things, kind of. You've heard them all, but they've never affected you. They've never changed you. They've never moved you. They've never become a part of who you are. And so, you are like the women And, and you're pondering these things. And you're amazed by these things. But you don't really know Jesus. Well, the second possibility, the second thing we see is that some of Jesus' followers were surprised by his resurrection because they simply didn't believe so we see in verses 10 and, and 11, go back to verse 9 here a little bit, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. There were 11 apostles of Jesus, since the 12th, Judas had committed suicide after betraying him. And each one of them, each one of those 11, though it's likely they had spent more time with Jesus than anyone else in the world, save, I suppose, his mother, found the words of these women to be literally unbelievable. Luke says they thought it an idle tale. And then bluntly says, they did not believe. One commentator, I forget who it was, but they made an astute point. that We, we have this tendency, I'm going to paraphrase them, uh, we have this tendency to think of people who lived before us, and especially those who lived long before us in pre-modern civilizations, as sort of gullible simpletons, Right? They're willing to believe all sorts of nonsense and fairy tales and superstitions. But that's simply not true. That's not how people in history have been. They're more like us than we're often willing to believe. And that's more than proven by the reaction of these apostles. Their reaction is exactly what you would expect a normal human being's reaction to be today if they were told 
people had seen two angels in lightning-like clothing telling them that Jesus had raised from the dead. Their reaction was they don't believe. These 11 men, many of whom were certainly blue-collar types, were not particularly impressed by this tale of angels telling women that Jesus had risen from the dead. And if you are super modern and, and, and think that the superstitious stuff is uh, too easy for those early gullible people to believe in, you might think, good for them. But their lack of belief is not to their credit. Belief comes in different forms in the New Testament. We've talked about that a lot, and I'm not going to reiterate all of it. The word belief, though, has a wide range of meanings, and here the meaning probably leans strongly toward intellectual agreement. In other words, they didn't regard what they were hearing from these women as true. Now, merely accepting certain facts about Jesus to be true does not a Christian make. The devil knows quite a few facts about Jesus, I'm pretty sure. And that doesn't make him a Christian. But nonetheless, believing certain things about Jesus is pretty important. And one of those important things that we need to accept about Jesus if we're to call ourselves a Christian is that he rose from the dead, his resurrection. These 11 followers of Jesus, his closest followers, did not believe what they were hearing from the women. They would have heard the same prophecies that uh, Jesus had made before, the ones that we just recounted, that he said he was going to raise from the dead, including the one that we looked at in a lot of depth last week in Luke 9.22. They would have heard all these things. But they're not even having cognitive dissonance here. Luke says flatly, they did not believe. They did not believe. And maybe that is familiar to you. Maybe you have declined to see certain facts about Jesus as true. One of two ways. Maybe you call yourself a Christian. And there are certain facts about Jesus that you cannot give intellectual assent to. Whether it, it be his death or whether it be his resurrection, whether it be uh, his, his virgin birth, whether uh, it, it be his ability to perform miracles, uh, whatever the case might be. Maybe it's something much smaller, maybe it's something much greater, I don't know. But there are certain, in, from a Christian standpoint, facts that are incontrovertible. They, they are not up for discussion. They're not up for debate. Because again, a Jesus who didn't rise from the dead is a worthless failure of a Savior. No Savior at all. A Jesus who went to the cross and said, I'm dying for your sins. And then goes into a tomb and lays there until his body decays. He's not a savior worth worshiping. He didn't save anyone from his sins. He's just a sinner himself.
And so I would challenge you that if you call yourself a Christian, but there are certain facts about Jesus that you are not believing, you're really no sort of Christian at all. And you really are the same as, as the other person who might be here who doesn't necessarily call themselves a Christian and, and the, the stumbling block for them is the same as the stumbling block for the apostles in this very moment. They simply did not believe. And if you think, you know, again, they, they just could not give intellectual assent to certain facts because I'm sure if you had asked Peter or John or James or Andrew or, uh, or, or, or Thaddeus or, or, or the other Judas, the good one, um, you know, or, or Matthew, you know, don't you want Jesus to have been resurrected from the dead? Well, sure, I want Jesus to be resurrected from the dead. That would be great news. But that's absurd. It didn't happen. I don't believe it. We know the story of Thomas, of course, who even after the other apostles saw Jesus face to face, he, he still refuses to believe. He's like, until I stick my hand in the open wounds of my Savior, then I will believe. And, and so, whatever the case might be, there is something that is holding you back from, from accepting these facts about Jesus. And I would certainly, uh, or I would, I would, can only really give you the encouragement that Jesus gave Thomas himself. And Jesus said to Thomas, you believe because you have seen, more blessed are those who believe without having seen. And Jesus will take faith where he finds faith. And he will bless faith. But there's a greater blessing on those of us who have never seen the resurrected Jesus and yet know it to be true. There's a third possibility, and that is some of Jesus' followers simply didn't understand. We see Peter, he hears this, doesn't believe it, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. See, Peter was curious. He didn't believe the women. Luke's already said that. But something drove him to the tomb to see for himself. Perhaps while disbelieving, maybe he was still somewhat open-minded. Or perhaps he thought this was all absurd, and he'd had enough, and was just going to go down there himself and settle this once for all. He was going to figure out what in the world the women were seeing and, and come back and show them, look, you guys were crazy. There was no, there was no light. There was a rock, and, the, and, the, and the, the sun glanced off of it brightly. I mean, you, guys are, you guys are nuts. Who knows? We don't know what drove Peter there, but something about the situation, he was going to go down there and, and get some answers for himself. And so he runs. And he gets down there. And once he's there, he, he stoops down because the, the, the entrance on one of these tombs would have been lower. You, you have to kind of stoop down to go in and, and then you can stand up, usually, or at least get up a little bit higher once you're past the, the opening. 
And, and as he looks down, he, of course, has seen some of the same things the women saw. He, he, he's seen the broken seal. He's seen that the, the stone has been rolled away. He's seen that the Roman soldiers have been scattered. And he sees an empty tomb, or at least it's an almost empty tomb. Because on closer inspection, he, he does see something there, right? He sees the linen cloths. The linen cloths would have been strips of cloth that were used for wrapping the body for burial. I guess not entirely unlike an Egyptian mummy. Again, they didn't mummify the bodies. They didn't preserve it. But they did wrap the body in strips of cloth for burial. And, and Luke notes this little detail that, I mean, I don't even really catch it the first time I read it. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, oh, that's a neat little detail. Just He, he, he throws in that he saw the linen cloths by themselves. They're by themselves. You know, just this, this idea that they, they weren't with anything. And they should have been with a body. That's what they're there for. And they were by themselves. There was no body. Peter leaves, and as he departs, he's left, it says, marveling at what had happened. Marveling's a, it's a nonspecific word. It might be tempting to read into it a sense that, that Peter was just in awe of the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, but, but that's, that's not, the, the word doesn't give us enough to say that that's what's going on. It's a, it's a very generic term for great amazement. It, it's not a sign of belief. It's not really a sign of disbelief either. It signifies something else. It usually implies perplexedness. And certainly something perplexing was going on. Other translations suggest wonder. Peter was, was wondering what had happened. And that's technically accurate, but I think when we use the term wonder that way, like I wonder what's going on, there's no sense of awe with us, right? It just means I'm thinking about what happened. And, and so if we use that, that phrase accurately, like when I say, I wonder what's happening, if we were really wondering, what, like I want to know what's going on and I'm in awe about the fact, it's kind of both of those ideas going on at, at the same time. But when we use the word wonder, there's not usually any wonder in our wondering. Peter is wondering and he's amazed. A dead body is missing. And that, given the circumstances, is a pretty amazing thing. He's heard fantastic testimony from a group of women, some of whom he likely knows very well, but he can't put it all together. He just doesn't understand everything he's experiencing. And so Peter has kind of changed from disbelief to lack of understanding, confusion. And maybe that's where you are with the Christian message. You're like Peter. You, you've heard everything now, but you don't understand it. There, there's some missing links, some connections that aren't being made. I mean, Peter should be making all the connections at this point, but he's clearly not. Something hasn't synced for you. Well, what Peter inevitably needed, um, as most of the apostles needed, is he needed his Savior to put this back into context for him. And so Jesus would 
later, he showed up. Showed up to Peter, showed up to the other apostles. He began to explain to them. Certainly he explained some of these things while he had been previously alive, but, but they couldn't register them for whatever reason. But now having seen him die, having seen him crucified, having seen him raised to new life, suddenly some of these things could make sense and Jesus could explain. That in the very next episode, he takes two of his followers who are traveling between towns and he explains to them from, from the beginning of the scriptures, from, from Genesis to Malachi, how the Old Testament points to Jesus as the Savior and how he fits into God. And, and their eyes are open to how Jesus fits into God's plan for all the world in a way that it wasn't before. And, and Jesus needed to speak that clarity into their lives before they put it together. And maybe that's you. And if you're in that camp, and, and these things just, you, you heard it, you've seen it, but you're not sure how it all fits together. Um, Brian mentioned earlier, and, and I'm going to just put this out there again, um, there, there's so much we could say, and, and we can't fit it all into one sermon. And so one of the things that, that we're going to do in the new year is we're going to offer this, this class called Christianity Explained that's going to take you to Jesus' words. And, and let Jesus himself, in his word, we're going to look at the, the Gospel of Mark, speak about who he is and, and what he is. And, and let Jesus fill in those gaps, so to speak, and, and clarify how this all fits together. And if, if this is you or if you know someone who is like that, let them know about this. This is something that's very very casual, low-pressure type thing. And we'll just we'll sit down and, and you don't have to talk, you don't have to pray, you don't have to sing songs, you don't have to do anything weird. I don't think those things are weird, but some people think those things are weird, and that's okay. You, know, you, don't, you won't be made to do any of those things. And, uh, but you can ask questions. You can ask any question you want, and you can ask as many questions as you want and, and, until you know, these things start to make sense to you. Because... What, what Peter would eventually get when he saw his Savior face to face and, and had these things clarified for him is that Jesus had to die. He had to rise. He had to die. We saw it last week. He had to die because it was part of God's eternal plan for Jesus to die, for Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins because the penalty for sin is death and so rightly i deserve to die and so here's the good news the good news is that god loves sinners that god died for sinners that god saved sinners and if you place your faith in him Intellectual agreement, yeah, but also trust. Relational trust. Not only does Jesus raise a new life, but you raise to new life as well. You become known as a sinner for whom Christ died. His resurrection, essential 
the angel said, we, we spent a lot of time on this last week, but I'll, I'll bring it back up again. The angel said to him that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, must be crucified, and must on the third day rise. He had to rise. It was necessary that Jesus rose. Why was it necessary that Jesus rose? Because if we have a spiritual debt before God, and the ledger is deep in the red, and if Jesus dies to pay that balance off, and he stays dead, it means the balance didn't clear. It means that his sacrifice was not enough to bring my account into the black. Maybe he brought it up a little bit. But if Jesus' death clears me out of the red before God and brings me back up above zero and into the black so that I have a positive standing before God, and that's what Scripture says that I have, then that means there was funds left over. Jesus rose from the dead because his sacrifice was more than sufficient to pay for my sins. And there was money left in the bank. And so the scriptures say he was raised to life for my justification. It's saying that he was raised to life so that those who trust in him are made right standing before God. They're placed, they're justified before God. They can stand before God on the day of judgment. And, and when God says, why? Why do you think you should get past this court trial? Why do you think you should get past here and into to my eternal bliss? And he said, because I have a Savior who's standing there and not in a tomb. Because there was enough in the bank to cover me. And then some, Jesus had to rise. So I hope this morning that, that no, you are not like the women. And, and no, uh, that, that you are, are simply uh, uh, not hearing what Jesus has already spoken to you, what you already know, that you are not like the eleven and that you just simply do not believe. And I hope that you're not like Peter after he takes a look for himself and he's just perplexed and trying to put it together. But if you are, know that those women, those 11, that that Peter had a, a, a future and that there is a, a Jesus who wants to be revealed to you. And, and I certainly would be more than happy and Brian would be more than happy. Any member here um, would be more than happy to show you this Jesus more clearly. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those especially this morning who maybe have not really made the move of faith have not made the move uh, into the label Christian, Christ follower, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ for whatever reason. 
maybe they have in name, but they haven't in heart. Maybe they haven't even in name. And, I, and we pray for them that whatever the, the, the reason is that's holding them back, maybe they've, they've known stuff from their earliest childhood, but they, but they have not been able to reconcile it and, and internalize it and, and grab a hold of it as their own. Maybe they simply cannot accept certain facts to be true. Maybe they are in a state of confusion and, and perplexion about what this all means. But God, as sure as you are sovereign, we know that you are able to reveal yourself to them in a way to draw them to your grace. And we pray that that indeed would be your will. And God, I, I lift up those here who do know you, who do call themselves by the name of their Christ. That we would cling to the joy of a resurrected Savior. And that in the strength of the knowledge that our Savior lives, we would have the boldness and confidence to share this good news with a world desperately in need of it. It's in that Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship God in song.